0: Greetings, everyone. This is Peter D'Auger with the ninth episode of Y2K, an autobiography podcast. The title for this one is Y2K and COVID-19, What They Share. Now, to be honest, it was not my original intent to do anything on COVID-19. However, over the last little while, I've been asked repeatedly if there are parallels. And I must admit, in the last couple of interviews that I've been doing with folks, that question has come up. How are they similar? because there are similarities. But here's the problem. They're not comparable. Not, not in any way, shape, or form are they the same type of problem, the same size of problem. That little dot down there is Y2K. And COVID is monstrously larger than that. The stuff that's happened already with COVID far exceeds the worst reasonable predictions of Y2K. Around the world, hundreds of thousands of people have died. Millions are infected. As I'm doing this, I think the number right now is 3.8 million. This is not Y2K. In many, many ways, Y2K was trivial compared to COVID. The social impact, the economic impact, uh, everything else that's going on, the amount of effort that's being put into it, Y2K just pales in comparison. But having said that, there are parallels. But they're not parallels between Y2K and COVID. They're parallels between Y2K, COVID, SARS, climate change, the decline of bees, the rise of plastic pollution. You get the idea. They're comparable to any warning and how society responds to the warnings. There. The parallels are undeniable. I mean, I'm going to read you some stuff from various things, and all you have to do is substitute uh, one word for something like flu or COVID, and you'll see that they're the same statements. They could have been pulled from the same headlines. Back last year, on September the 27th, I took a flight over to Ireland. I wasn't born there, but I was raised there, and I'm an Irish citizen. And I've mentioned before, I have a couple of favorite spots. I have a number of relatives over there, so quite regularly I go over. I hadn't been looking at the weather. I didn't see any reason to. Ireland is Ireland. It's going to be raining, which is why everything is green. So the weather doesn't bother me. And I wasn't going to be taking any ferries, so I didn't have to worry about any storms. Every now and then I'll take a ferry over to the Aran Islands, and keeping an eye on the weather is important. Too much wind, and they're not going to have the ferries, and then I have to make other plans. Now, it just turns out that I went over there for a little bit of work. I met with a bunch of my relatives. They're all getting on in age. And then I headed to my sweet spot, Doolin, West Clare, for the music. And it turns out that Lorenzo, the hurricane that was brewing in the North Atlantic, was going to cross over. Doolin. The eye of the storm was going to cross over where I was. I was scheduled to be in Doolin on October the 5th. By October the 4th, it had petered out, but I didn't know that. And that evening, I certainly didn't know that. We were looking at the weather, we were looking at the reports, and it was getting a little bit scary listening to all the media reports uh, the evening of October the 3rd. I ended up staying in Ennis. Tracy uh, is West Coast County Inn, a place I've stayed a few times, far enough away from the coast. So if it was really bad, I wouldn't be hammered. I wouldn't be hurt. And besides, it had a pub, so I was fine. The next day, I head out to Doolan after the storm. But before we get there, let's look at some of the media leading up to this. The statements were typical. I'll read from The Guardian, October the 2nd. Ireland is bracing for strong winds, downed power lines and coastal flooding when Storm Lorenzo barrels in from the Atlantic before hitting Britain. Met Aaron, the National Meteorological Service, issued a status orange wind warning on Wednesday for six counties on the West Coast and a yellow warning nationwide for Thursday night and Friday morning. The main impacts would include disruptive winds, falling trees, and flooding, it said. Storm Lorenzo will produce significant swell, high waves, and sizable storm surges. This will lead to wave overtopping, some coastal flooding, and damage, especially along western and southern coasts. And it goes on. At the time this was coming out, Lorenzo was a Category 5, and it was the first Category 5 in the area. They'd never had a storm that large and strong in the North Atlantic just off the coast of Ireland. Not for years. Certainly not since the computerized weather models were put in place. So they really had no data on how a storm of this magnitude would react. Lo and behold, on the 3rd of October, it was destined in the morning to pass by Ireland. And then it took a hard right and barreled straight towards Doolin and Galway. Looking at it, looking at where I was going to be, I was figuring maybe the pose would be underwater. Maybe. Another bit of information. Uh, public were being urged to be extremely careful as Storm Lorenzo set to batter Ireland later this evening. This is the Irish Mirror on October the 3rd. Gusts up to 130 kilometers an hour are expected. The ferocious cyclone arrives on Irish shores. None of this is over the top. They're talking about a major storm. It's a Category 5. They're doing what they need to do. Now, the weather reports were a little bit more hectic. In other words, the radio reports that evening were a little bit scarier. They were definitely trying to get people to take precautions and batter down the hatches. Uh, While several state bodies are advising everyone to exercise caution over the next few days, here's a quote. Irish people, as usual, have been taking to social media, making lighthearted fun about the incoming storm. That sounds familiar. Not just Irish people. People do this all the time. They did it about Y2K. Y2K was a joke before it happened. They're doing it about COVID. It's nothing but the flu. It's nothing but a sniffle. This is what we do. This is what people do. When they are given a warning, they downplay it. Why? Who knows? We're going to go through a bunch of the different reasons, but it really is peculiar behavior, especially since we've seen Category 5s totally destroy countries, islands, sweep in and destroy everything, thousands dead. But it's never going to happen to us, right? We're immortal. We're impervious to these types of problems. So we make light of it. And it doesn't matter what the radio says or what the Meteorological Society says. We're going to make fun of it. Not everybody, but a certain portion of the of population are going to make fun of this. On the evening of October 3rd, Lorenzo came to a skidding halt. It dropped from a Category 5 to a Category 2 at most. When I was out in Doolin, it was like a fresh Irish breeze, something I'm well familiar with. It was blustery, but it wasn't a hurricane. But a day or two ago, it was a Category 5. What do you want the media to do? The media has to warn you. Here are some of the responses from citizens writing into newspapers. Your alarmist commentary stops people leaving their homes and businesses suffer. You told people to stay home. Do we live in that much of a nanny state? The elderly and children are being unnecessarily frightened, all because of what we used to regard as a stiff breeze. Marry this to Matt Aaron's continuous inaccuracy, and we have created a monster. Now, if you can't see the parallel between that and COVID-19, then you're not paying attention. You could remove everything related to the hurricane and just read this as someone talking about COVID-19 and why the lockdown is unnecessary and it's all a bunch of hooey and we shouldn't have to be doing this. And besides which, it's really going to impact my bottom line. Met Aaron has accused the media of overhyping the potential impact of Storm Lorenzo and contributing to the fear that some people have already had in the run up to the event. In other words, now it's Met Aaron, the meteorology office, accusing the media of overhyping it. Basically, the media was doing what the media does it's juicing the statements a little bit. That's what they do. We discussed that in an earlier episode. That is what the media always does. They're not going to report that the the department says that there's a 95% chance of this hitting within 10 miles of this area, give or take a couple of hours. That's boring. What they're going to talk about is a ferocious cyclone barreling down on Ireland. Take shelter. Protect yourselves. Because people don't respond to facts. People respond to emotion. Unfortunately, the Spock person inside me is frustrated by that. I would rather just have the facts. I would rather just use facts to make arguments. But the reality is people don't listen to facts. They listen to story, they listen to emotion, and they respond best to fear, unfortunately. Here's another statement. As a business owner whose ability to trade is weather-dependent, I am appalled at the rapidly increasing tendency of Met Aaron to be a part of the media feeding frenzy surrounding any weather event that comes Ireland's way. As I said, that could be any response to any warning that doesn't pan out the way the person giving the warning had predicted. Let's shift to another part of this whole conundrum. L'Aquila is a small town in Italy, and before April 2009, it was a nice little place. And then in April 2009, there's an earthquake that does some serious damage, 308 deaths, magnitude 6.3 on the Richter scale. Leading up to that, there were no dire warnings. There was no hype. There was no media feeding frenzy. In fact, there were very few warnings at all. Fair enough. People should be safe, right? I mean, they should be upset there were no warnings. But how do you predict an earthquake? We don't have that technology. Italy responded as follows. Seven of the earthquake scientists that were doing things like earthquake studies, the ones who didn't say anything, they were charged with manslaughter, And the reason they were charged with manslaughter is that they were accused of not accurately warning people. Now, this is the direct opposite of the Lorenzo story. In the Lorenzo story, you have people warning, take cover, do this. Category five is coming down the road. And then it doesn't happen. Here's a situation where there are no warnings, but there is a disaster. And now we're going to penalize the people who didn't make the warnings about something that there is no way on this planet to make a warning for yet. We cannot predict earthquakes. End of story. And for someone to be charged with manslaughter for not being able to make a prediction, to me and to many others, this was a huge controversy, is absolutely ludicrous. It gets worse. The seven people were sentenced to six years in jail. They were found guilty of manslaughter. They were charged with $10.2 million worth of damages. Now, this is insane. You can't fault someone for not predicting the future accurately. Because the future is a horse race. We don't know what's going to happen. But Italy tried to do that and succeeded for a while. The sentence was eventually overturned but eventually the very notion that we would blame someone for not warning us loudly enough is is ludicrous in my mind and in the mind of most scientists imagine if that became the norm well for starters no one would get into any business where you could make a prediction anymore because predictions by their very very nature are risk-based, they're probabilities, they're your best guess, nothing more. Now the challenge is, in all of these things, is that the notion is is that the people warning us need to do it correctly, however you define correctly. But if you look around the world, there are a lot of topics out there. I'm gonna list off a bunch. Bridge collapses are happening around the world. We had one in Genoa, uh, in Italy. Bridge collapsed. There were people warning about that prior, saying they need to be better maintained. You know, it was failing. Up in Canada, in Ontario, we had an algo mall collapse. The roof, roof collapsed. Kill someone. For years, there had been warnings that this thing was going to happen. No one listened. And there was incompetence. And there was misreporting. And there was shoddy work. But there were warnings. They weren't listened to. In Toronto, we have an event that hasn't happened yet. We have the Gardiner Expressway. Uh, it is a raised expressway at the bottom of our city, south of the city, after the city, before the lake. Pieces of it are falling down. Large pieces of concrete. The warnings are there. We haven't decided to go in and pull it down and fix it. Get rid of it entirely. We're doing a little bit of patchwork here and there. If it ever falls down, I'm not saying it will. But if it ever falls down, the hue and cry will be, why didn't we listen to these people? We have plastics as an issue. Plastics are here forever. Every one of us buy it. Our garbage is filled with it. We're producing more than we will ever replace. It's all going somewhere. It's not all being recycled. It's filling up the oceans. Once upon a time, we had a problem with DDT, an insecticide. We finally got rid of that. We listened to the warnings long after. Not all the ones here I'm going to list are ones I believe in. The next one, for example, problems with vaccines. There are people all over the world warning you about vaccines. Personally, I think that's nuts. I think vaccines are one of the best things we've ever come up with. It saves millions of lives. But there are warnings out there, right? So here's the challenge. How do we decide which warnings we listen to and which we don't? Because that's always going to be the issue. When I start talking about Y2K back in 1993, there were people who legitimately looked at me and said, who is he? He's a nobody. He's not an expert. Why, we should, why should we listen to him? We had warnings from China. We were reporting. I remember the reports in January of this year. I remember seeing Wuhan being locked down and saying, this must be serious. They're locking down an entire city. Ah, But it's China. They can do stuff like that. There were warnings. We didn't listen. One of the problems with early warnings is that there are always weak signals. Early warnings, by their nature, are weak signals. They're not picked up by everybody. They're picked up by some. And what happens is, if a particular warning out of the hundreds that we hear every day comes true in the future, then with twenty twenty hindsight, it's easy to look back and say, we should have listened to that person. Why didn't we do that? Why were we so foolish? Well, fair enough, but there were 99 other predictions that we heard that we didn't pay attention to. What I'm hoping to do here is saying that it's not easy to criticize people who don't listen to warnings. It's not fair because we hear so many of them. We have privacy concerns being raised all around the world. We have inequity, financial inequity being raised as an issue. There are people warning about CRISPR. Is it legitimate? There are people warning about GMOs. Is that legitimate? I don't believe so. Other people do. We have another computer problem, similar to Y2K, coming up in 2038. No one's really talking about it yet. Yeah, there's a mumble, there's a whisper out there. But I don't know of any large 2038 remediation programs going on right now. I don't certainly see any leader out there beating the drum like I did in Y2K. How big a problem is it? I'll tell you something. I don't know. I haven't looked into it deep enough. We have declining bird population. How big a problem is that? The warning's out there. We're not doing anything about it. Y2K was a global issue. Uh, We have great white sharks sitting off small towns and the, the, the mayor of the town saying, it's okay to go back in the water. We have COVID out there. They're saying it's okay to go back to work. Same issue. We have climate change. Oh my God, he stepped into that one. Politics. Oh my God, how did this get politicized? Climate change is huge. We have people saying that 5G is an issue. I don't believe it is. But there are people out there saying it is. Who do you listen to? How do you decide? Once upon a time, we had an ozone layer problem. That finally got paid attention to, and we fixed that. There used to be warnings about thalidomide. The, The medicine given pregnant women took it with disastrous results there were warnings about that before the disastrous consequences made themselves known. We had warnings for years about cancer, cigarettes and cancer. Didn't really pay attention to it. Now we're aware of it, but we still sell cigarettes. Again, why would we stop? Because otherwise that would put an entire industry out of business. You know, we'd rather have people die of cancer. And you know, we could get rid of that. We don't. Freedom of choice, right? Asbestos used to be something we had warnings about, didn't do anything about for years, then it finally got the message. Fracking is one that has lots of warnings about, causes earthquakes, pollutes groundwater. We still do it. And they won't tell us what chemicals are in the fracking. Uh, the bee population is on the decline. Good grief. If the bee population declines and goes nowhere, in other words, goes to zero, we're in deep, deep problem. And of course, we have murder hornets to just uh, top everything off. My point with that list is that there are a large number of issues out there where we receive warnings. Now, are they warnings like uh, Lorenzo? Uh, are, are some of them hyped? Well, I guess maybe some of them are, especially the ones I disagree with. See, the, see how that works? I've made up my mind on some of these. So have you. I don't know if What I've decided is real is the same as what you've decided is real. And that's the crux of the matter. How do we decide? Now, I went out looking and saying, OK, is there a tool? Anybody put some work together that says, how do we make decisions about forecasting? First, how do we make them and how do we judge them? And sure enough, I did find one. Go out and search for a document entitled Standards and Practices for Forecasting by J. Scott Armstrong. It's downloadable, it's a PDF. He's at 139 principles for forecasting. 139 principles for forecasting. They're all valid. I'm only gonna list a few. Tailor the level of data aggregation or segmentation to the decisions. Decompose the problem into parts. Decompose the time series by casual forces. Uh, decompose time series by level and trend. Avoid biased data sources, use diverse sources of data, remove politics from the forecasting, etc., etc., etc. I'm pretty sure that if you knew all 139 principles for forecasting, you knew how to apply them, you knew how to measure them, you knew what they meant, you knew how to use them, that you would be able to look at any forecast and assign a level of probability. You would not be certain. That's the key. You would not be certain. You could assign a level of probability as to whether or not that particular forecast is accurate or not. But you and I know that there's going to be very, very few people, especially from the masses, the lay people, who would even bother to look at tools for determining whether or not a prediction is correct or not. Because they just go ahead and form their opinion. Now, there's a whole bunch of reasons why we respond to these warnings in the way we do. I'll go through about a dozen of them. First one, and one that's becoming very popular these days because the reality of it, the the accuracy of it, is becoming more and more important and more and more apparent. And that's the Dunning-Kruger effect. The Dunning-Kruger effect is real simple to understand. It says the person who knows nothing about a subject is very, very confident in their opinions about that subject. It's this is the person who says, I'm not an expert or I'm not a doctor, but here's my uneducated, ignorant opinion. And I believe it because I read something on the Internet. In reality, with Dunning-Kruger, there's another side to it. Someone who really does know the subject very, very well is going to be the person most likely to say, you know what? I'm really not 100% sure about anything because I know enough to know I'm stupid. I know enough to know I'm ignorant. Uh, I get asked about Y2K, and I'll answer any question on Y2K because I am knowledgeable about it. I will still, from time to time, bow to another expert in another area. Embedded systems would be an example of that. I often get asked about 2038, and my response to that is, I don't know. I mean, I know enough to know that I don't understand anything about that subject matter. But it's like Y2K. Well, it is isn't. it isn't. It's not exactly the same issue, and it wasn't at the same time frame so my knowledge of 2038 is minimal but dunning-kruger affects everything anytime we hear something we make a judgment and dunning-kruger our assessment our judgment of what we hear is affected by this concept the less we know the more certain we are the more we know the more we realize that we don't really don't know very very much another one is confirmation bias confirmation bias is basically Picking data that confirms what you think. Now, this one's going to require you to take a bit of a pen and paper and put down something. I'm going to put out four cards in front of you. And what I'm going to tell you in this statement is true. Uh, Each of the cards has a number on one side and a letter on the other side. So that's a given. That is a true statement. It is a God's statement. In other words, there's nothing wrong with that statement. Four cards. Each card has two sides course they do on one side there's a letter on the other side there's a number i'm putting four cards down in front of you and on one card there's a letter e on the other card there's the letter k on one card there's the number four and the other card there's the number seven now here's another statement a card with a vowel on one side is an even number on the other side Now, we're not going to take a long time with this. It is a podcast. I can't see what you're doing. If you choose to do it, then great. Here's the question You need to validate the statement I made. The the second one. A card with a vowel on one side has an even number on the other side. There are four cards in front of you E, K, 4, and 7. Here's the question You can turn over two cards to validate the statement. Which two cards? Do you turn over? Now, I could give you time to do it, but you could pause this just as easily. Most people turn over the E because they need it the a vowel and they need to see if there is indeed an even number on the other side. Turning over E is correct. Most people recognize that they don't need to turn over K because our statement A card with a vowel on one side with an even number on the other side has nothing to do with the letter K. K is not a vowel, so we can ignore it. Uh, But the next one is a four, even number. And what most people do, and this is where the confirmation bias comes in, they want to prove that the statement is correct. That's not the objective here. The objective is to see whether or not the statement is wrong. But most people will turn the four over to see if there's a vowel on the other end that's unnecessary if there is then there's nothing wrong if there isn't let's assume that it's not a vowel on the other side and it's a four on this side there's no contradiction there's nothing in the statement that says if it's not a vowel it must be an even number it can't be an even number the ideal thing to do is you turn over e and you turn over seven You turn over seven to make sure that there's no vowel on the other end, because if there's a vowel on the other side, then the statement I made is wrong. This is confirmation bias, and it fits in to this discussion. The people who were reporting back, uh, complaining about Ireland's uh, media talking about it, and they, then they were scoffing at it, their confirmation bias is, I told you that this wouldn't be a serious problem, and it wasn't a serious problem, and therefore your prediction was wrong. We see really don't seem to understand what a prediction is. A prediction is a guess, best guess possible, based upon data. It's no guarantee it's going to be correct every single time. And which would you rather have? No warning and a hurricane comes in and you're unprepared? Or a warning and you prepare and nothing happens? That's the conundrum. Another one that is working against our favor and getting the right response from people when we give a warning, whether it comes out to be true or false, is that people don't respond to facts. Arguments are not one with facts. Like I said earlier, the Spock part of me is annoyed by this. To me, facts should rule. The reality is, and I know this as a speaker and a writer, is that emotion is what rules. If I want to get you to do something, give me the facts, should work. would be nice if it did, but it doesn't. What works is emotion. If you do this, you're going to burn yourself. Don't do that. If you don't take a vaccine, your kids are going to get measles and probably die. That's emotion. That actually works better than facts. Facts are cold, heartless. We, we don't assimilate them well. People are driven by emotion. And there's a catch-22 there. If we stir up emotions to get them to act, and then the event doesn't happen, they are rightly annoyed. We have things like false positives. False positive is when we say something is a certain way. We confirm it, and it turns out to be not that way. A broken clock gives you false positives all the time. What time is it? And the broken clock says it's 20 to 1. An hour later, you ask, what time is it? And the clock still says 20 to 1. It's giving you information. It just happens to be wrong. It's saying this is the time, and it's incorrect. Once or twice a day, well, twice a, day a clock will be wrong. The clock, The broken clock will be correct, and you get another type of error. It's the right answer, but for the wrong reason. False negatives are interesting. Pregnant woman goes and takes a pregnancy test. False negative is when the pregnancy test comes back and says, you're not pregnant, and she's close to term. We have false negatives and predictions all the time. Then we have false positives. They, they muddy the water. This is not simple. There's a multitude of voices with any prediction, with any situation. There are people saying that. client... Climate change is a hoax. Climate change isn't real. Other people saying, yes, it is. Here's the data. And we have people changing their minds in the middle of the thing. So it's not only that there's a multitude of voices, but there's a multitude of messages. And the messages are not exactly clear and they're not exactly consistent. And they change from day to day. One day eggs are good for you. The next day they're not. Part of that problem is that the scientists will do a study. And determined that, you know what, under these very, very specific conditions, here's a very, very specific effect, a very, very specific effect uh, attached to a probability in a particular. And the media will report scientists say eggs are bad for you. Never eat bacon. Never have scotch. What would life be with all of those three? So there's a multitude of voices, and we don't know how good the voices are. We have a conflation of outcomes. So I predict a hurricane will hit this particular city. I'm two miles outside the city. Hurricane hits the city, but it doesn't affect me. Therefore, in my mind, I wasn't affected by the hurricane and the prediction was wrong. It's impossible to make a prediction that is accurate for every individual because the outcomes for the different individuals will be inevitably different. Right now, I'm showing an image of a large tree that falls down. There's a car underneath it large tree doesn't affect the car to this person the person in the house who owned the car and the tree hurricanes aren't that big a deal yes a tree fell down but it didn't damage my house and it didn't damage my car i'm not worried about future hurricanes or future warnings meanwhile the guy next door the, the tree has collapsed on his house and um you know next time you tell him about a hurricane he's going to get you know get out of dodge he's going to do it as quickly as possible And then we get to the whole business about critical thinking, level of education, and people simply not knowing how predictions work. One of the statements about Met Aaron is that they're consistently inaccurate because there's this preconceived notion that anybody, any scientist that tells you something is 100% certain of what they're telling you. That's not how it works. I really wish that when they showed hurricane tracks, you know, where the where is Hurricane Lorenzo going to show up, that they don't just pick one model and say, well, here's the predicted path based upon this model. What they really should do is pick all of the models and draw all the lines on the screen. And then people will say, well, which one is accurate? And then the honest answer is, I don't know. We'll find out tomorrow which one was accurate. But they're all over the map. Yeah, science is like that. It's complicated, it's dirty, it's messy. There is no single tool that will tell you exactly what the future is going to look like. I used to get asked all the time, what will Y2K do? What will be the the outcome? And the honest answer, which I made many, many times, was, I don't know. I have no idea how a particular problem in a computer will manifest itself. We were talking about a file transfer protocol problem in one of the interviews, and that problem was incredibly simple. It was a tiny little error, but in within six hours, it cost the company several million dollars in penalties. Six hours. Program stops working. Within six hours, senior executives in the organization are sitting around a table saying, how do we fix this? What was happening was simple. When the FTP on one program was trying to connect to the FTP protocol on the other computer, they were comparing dates. And there was a date problem, a leap year problem. One system thought it was February the 29th. The other one thought it was March 1st. This happened within the first millisecond of connection, and the line would drop. They had absolutely no idea what was causing the problem. People think we know how these things work. We don't. We really don't understand how any of this works. And when something goes wrong, we we make the assumption, well, someone did it deliberately, or they're being deliberately inaccurate, or they're incompetent because there's a problem. Meanwhile, we're doing the very, very best we can with the models we have to predict the future. The day you can predict the future correctly, phone me up and we'll start buying lottery tickets en masse. Critical thinking. Months ago, I'm looking at the COVID-19. Uh, when was this one? This one would have been, I'm looking at it in March 16th. And I'm looking at the curves from the global cases, John Hopkins map. And I'm looking at the yellow line that was depicting other locations. And that yellow line had started the exponential growth. And I'm looking at that. I'm saying within a couple of weeks, we're going to be hitting millions. At the time, it was 250,000. I'm looking at this and I'm terrified. Why? Because I don't understand how these things work. I do know a little bit about epidemiology. I do know a little bit of thing about exponential growth. I do know a little bit about math. And I'm looking at these charts and saying, without anything significant changing, the status quo that's generating the exponential curve is going to continue. At this point in time, I have the meeting industry telling me that, oh, don't worry, you don't have to shut down meetings. Everything's going to be fine. And my advice to them back in March was simply shut them all down now. Avoid the rush. Save your money. Save the planning effort that's going to go in for a large conference in, say, June or April or May. And just cancel it before everybody else does. Oh, no, 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 you can't do that. Yeah, well, that's what the graph says. That's what the math says. That's what the science says. And those are the facts. Like I said earlier, facts don't matter. We also have different value systems. When we're evaluating the statements and the warnings coming from different parts of the population, we assign value statements to those. Whether you think of it as ideology or whether you think of it as simply, maybe easier, uh, we assess risk differently. I don't like risk, I'm risk adverse. I'm the problem solver who thinks I'm a success if I avoid problems, not if I solve them, but do something to avoid them. These are some of the sources of the conflict. Now, back in the day, back in the day, January the 28th, year 2000, I wrote an article called The Cautions of Cassandra. And it really wasn't an article. It was just a list of statements that I had gleaned to be true over the Y2K project. How it started, how it progressed, how it ended up, and how people responded to it. And it is relevant to this COVID-19 sort of discussion we're having about how people respond to warnings. Now, the beauty about the Internet is that everything is saved, right? If you go to the Wayback Machine on the Internet, and type in year2000.com, you can access all the articles that we had on that site back in the day, including this one's. The Cautions of Cassandra. Cassandra was the seer who could see the future and make predictions. And because of that, she was hated by everybody around her. With good reason. No one likes anybody who can predict the future we don't want to know the time of our death we don't want predictions that are realistic but dire we would rather tell each other that everything is going to be fine that we'll get through this when in reality if we really knew what was going to happen those predictions would be a little different so here come a bunch of the statements that i made back then and i think they're still applicable today Uh, the first one is a day the day a future event is easy to predict It's history. In other words, predicting the future is always going to be difficult. And it's always going to be somewhat inaccurate. It only gets accurate once it's passed. Another one. uh, You could be forgiven of any crime except the crime of being right when they publicly said you were wrong. (laughs) People really don't like that. Take it from experience. Take it from first-hand experience. People hate it when you're right. uh, On anything and you're seeing a little bit of that with covid we were you know there were some people warning loudly that this was an issue they were being ignored now lo and behold the numbers are through the roof both the numbers of those infected by this and of course the death numbers which sadly are almost becoming a statistic now, we don't have the names we don't constantly see the names and they remain a statistic I don't know of a single country, now I'm sure there's one or two out there, but I don't know of a single country yet that has decided that they need to fly all the, the flags at half-mast. After all, tens of thousands of people in nearly every country have been felled by this thing. A uh, good deed never goes unpunished. Uh, that's an oldie but a goody, but also true. Uh, the Pied Piper of Hamelin had the right idea. Save some of the rats. One of the things that's been pointed out numerous times is that one of the reasons why 2 k was considered a hoax was that, well, there weren't that many problems at the end. And if there weren't that many problems in the end, then the thought goes through people's minds that there were never any problems in the first place. Now, with respect to COVID, uh, just go look through some of the newspapers in New Zealand. New Zealand has pretty much squashed this. At the time of this recording, they haven't had a new infection, a new case in the last couple of days. Now, that's a first. Uh, Very few countries can say that. China had it for a few days. I think New Zealand now is longer. And the public's response, not everybody, this is never everybody, it's always small segments of the public, are saying that the what they went through, the hard lockdown that they went through, was totally unnecessary. Why? Their proof, their evidence, is that COVID is gone, or at least is not affecting anybody new on a day-to-day basis. Therefore, the logic goes, is that it was never an issue. Nothing could be further from the truth. With COVID and Y2K, it might be a good idea, not that I'm suggesting this, that we always have Y2K problems to remind us that, hey, this was real. And with COVID, that we're always having new people infected because, hey, this is real. I don't think we have any trouble with COVID for the next couple of years. I think we'll be having infections for at least the next two or three years uh, with lots of resurgences. I talked about, uh, this is a peculiar one. It takes some explanation. Uh, the worst predictions will be attributed to the most visible. What I mean there is, out of all the voices, in any subject matter, Y2K is a good example. There were lunatics out there predicting literally the end of the world, and Armageddon, and nuclear missiles flying left and right, and planes falling out of the sky. And I was one of the more visible people in Y2K. There's no doubt about that. Uh, It's neither a good thing nor a bad thing. But when I was doing an interview, I would get the statement, well, you know, you guys say that planes will fall out of the sky. And I go, whoa, whoa, hold hold the phone. I never said that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But people who talk about Y2K say that. And since you talk about Y2K, therefore, it's attributable to you as well. And I dealt with that quite regularly. Basically, anything anyone has said about a subject, whether it be climate change, COVID-19, no matter how outrageous it is, it will sooner or later be attributed to the most vocal person who spoke on that subject, because everything gets conflated. It all gets mixed together. Some other stuff that I learned that was unexpected. I mean, I have great respect for the written word, an article. It's there forever. It's permanent. It it can be misunderstood, but you can certainly go back to the text and reread it to see what's going on. But what I found is that the written word is permanent, but it's easily forgotten. I have hundreds of articles, dozens of articles on Y2K. Most of them are not read by the majority of people. Any particular article will be read by a handful of people, not everybody. So if everybody isn't reading it, they don't get to know what's in it. But the spoken word, getting on the radio, getting on TV, uh, giving a talk, that's very very, It's ephemeral. The talk is over very, very quickly. But if I'm doing an interview with CNN, that message is being communicated to a vast number of people. And what I have found, again, to my surprise, is people will listen to a talk and come up to you afterwards and say, well, you said this. I go, well, well, hold on a second. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. And because it was spoken, there's now no record of it unless you have a recording, which isn't always the case. So the spoken word is oft misunderstood, but it's remembered forever. Part of the reason something is remembered when, they, when you say it is that it's their memory. It's their interpretation, and they have something invested in it. So they'll remember what you supposedly said for a long, long time, and they'll never have read the article where you've actually stated something in a particular way. Now, Another key message, this isn't just from these two topics. What's important is not what was said, but what they think they heard. And I've learned from experience, what you say is not what they hear. Uh, Quite often people hear exactly what they want to hear, whether you said it or not. Uh, Another lesson I learned, the stronger the form of communication, the more numerous and distorted the echoes. And what I mean by that is, if you get on CNN, you're heard by everybody. And you're misunderstood by a lot of them. So the story gets around that you said this. I was reported as having said that planes would fall out of the sky on numerous occasions. I never once said that. How do I know that for certain? Because I was aware of it being said, and I made certain never to say it. I never phrased it that way. But I would get people to put their hand on a Bible and swear to high heaven that that's exactly what I said. See, there's easier to speak about what will happen in the future than it is to figure out what was said in the past. Uh, you want to watch any politician these days and remind them of what they said three months ago about this crisis, and it's a losing argument. The standard response is, I never said that. Or if I did say that, I didn't mean that. So with COVID, Y2K, uh, with any warning about an earthquake or any warning about... Uh, a hurricane uh, unless it's written down there's no proof uh, people will remember things the way they want to uh, this is one that everybody who works on these types of projects needs to keep in mind if we do it right the problems we warn of today will be unworthy of comment tomorrow in other words the best possible thing that can happen for anybody who's warning someone and they finally pay pay attention and then nothing happens because of the actions they took. And then they are accused of scaring people needlessly. That is the best possible outcome. It means our warning worked. We will not get credit for it. But that's not what—that's not why we do it. That's not why people warn. Why people warn other people is to protect them based upon the knowledge they have. And again, just so we're being fair to everybody. The people who are warning about GMO and warning about 5G and warning about vaccines, they are coming from it, rightly or wrongly, from their own perspective. They are as certain they're right as we are that they are wrong. Out of all the future troubles you see, focus on the worst. In other words, out of all the different predictions you can make, make the one that'll produce the, the highest benefit. I mean, if we're going to be hung for warning people, let's be hung for the most important reason, not for something trivial. Warn people about stuff that's really important, and just keep quiet about the other stuff that doesn't matter. Uh, again, I've sort of alluded to this several different ways. Integrity never has a choice when we see something that we think is going to be problematic we forget how others have been treated in the past and we face the future and we give the best advice we know how that's the only way to do that hindsight is always beats a prediction by at least 2020 and uh, there's one last and it refers to cassandra Uh, being blind is less of a curse making a prediction out of integrity, to help people. uh, You're never going to get rewarded for that. (laughs) If you didn't know, it might be safer sometimes. Uh, Of course, you have to qualify that a little bit right. Uh, Being blind, not giving a warning. Uh, Remember those seven earthquake scientists who were charged with manslaughter for not predicting the future? Can't win, can you? Quick summary. COVID-19 and Y2K are not the same. They are two totally different problems. Y2K was a trivial issue compared to COVID-19. COVID-19 is going to cost a lot, lot more than Y2K ever cost. So they are not the same. And I'm not even pretending to assume they are or to tell you that they are. The responses to warnings are always the same. If nothing happens, you hyped and scared us. Why'd you do that? Don't do that again. And if the disaster happened and you didn't warn us, well, why didn't you do that? I mean, it's your fault. And if you did do it and we didn't believe you, well, it's your fault for not doing it louder, for not making us believe you when you warned us of the danger. Uh, Despite this, those who believe they see a danger will always do their best to inform others. This has been a monthly series. I've been saying that it was going to go on for about nine or Twelve or something like that. I've decided it'll be going on a little bit longer than that. I have at least a couple of others. I have a session that I'll do on embedded systems. We'll have to do a session on the airline industry. We're going to have a humor section, if I can figure out how to do that in this format. I'm not sure how to do that. I don't have much of a sense of humor. There are going to be some other issues I want to speak about as well. Uh, we're certainly getting interviews lined up. Those are going slowly. People are very, very reluctant to talk about their experiences for reasons I don't quite understand. Because, as you know, I'll speak about anything. Other people are not so willing. We're going to continue doing the interviews. Uh, this is up on Podbean and iTunes. You know that, and you're listening to the uh, well. You're listening to the free part if you're just listening and not seeing the slides. For every one of these presentations, there is a slide presentation where some of the graphics are a little bit more than useful they help explain what's going on in my mind and what the conversation is all about maybe a little bit more i'm conscious of the fact that i'm recording it in two different ways one is an audio and one is a video i'm hoping that the audio one is coming through based upon the feedback it is so look without any further ado uh, be good be safe and uh, wash your hands and we will get through this eventually Maybe not all of us, but the vast, vast majority of us will. Take care. Be good, friends.